What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. And today we've got part two of that delicious conversation with uh, Jonathan Kirshner about his his book, Our Conversation on Classical Realism. And I think if you liked part one, you're obviously going to love part two. But uh, we get into teasing out, well, some of the contradictions of classical realism and also, you know, what good it does in the larger landscape of foreign policy ideas or ways of making sense in the world. And then uh, a good chunk of this conversation, and that's where it gets spicy, is taking on notions of the Thucydides trap, which is uh, vulgar. He, he's got issues with Graham Allison. And then, of course, uh, the great jousting with John Mearsheimer. It's a uh, great conversation. And if you, you know, everyone who listens to this show, I think, is into the China challenge, China problem on some level. And we get into that as well. A lot of convergences between Jonathan and I, despite some like philosophical differences. So I hope you enjoy. All right. Peace. This issue of capacity and social economy, it brings up the question of the national interest, which kind of like social science, I hate it as it actually exists, not concept, you know, not in principle. Um, I think the things that get described as the national interest and the the boundaries of that conversation, especially by Washington, it bears no resemblance to what is like truly in the nation's interest. Like the way you put it in the book, it was something like for a great power, the national interest gets consumed with second order problems that are like dubious or contestable or, or you know, dangerous. And that's that sort of gets at my concern. So in that context, can you introduce what milieu goals are? Because it's an important concept. And I had forgotten about that specific term. But actually, it's like really, I think it's an important concept to have on the table for people. Sure, it is very important. And again, we associated with with Arnold Wolfers, and he was, I think, properly coded as a classical realist. And what Wolfers point was, and in, in, in a number of essays was the was the observation, okay, so we look in IR, and we see anarchy, and we see states that want to survive. But actually, great powers are almost certainly going to survive, right? Most great powers, most of the time are not presented with current threats to their short-term survival of being invaded and overrun. That's mm -hmm. just not the world that great yeah. powers dwell in. So states may, providing for state security may be job one of all countries, but great powers pretty much have job one covered. And so what is the stuffing of foreign policy? It's not really on a day-to-day -day basis, the pursuit of the physical security of the nation. And so Wolfer suggested that great powers could pursue what he called milieu goals, as you described them, which are actions taken to influence the international environment in a way that is conducive to the values and affinities of the great power. And that in practice, he argued, most great powers, most of the time, their foreign policy behaviors on a day-to-day -day basis are focused more on milieu goals than they are on assuring that they won't be invaded and overrun next Tuesday. Mm -hmm. Again, because, you know, and if you look at say US foreign policy from the second world war, most of the time it was certainly not concerned about being physically invaded and overrun, right? It's foreign policy was designed to shape the nature of the overall international environment. 
uh, it made lots of big mistakes in so doing, but it also did, you know, it also did fairly well if you grade the American order on an Aronian scale, right? Raymond Aron would say, mm -hmm. don't grade behavior on what you wish it might have been, grade it against what was the likely plausible alternatives. And so if you look at the American order that emerged after the Second World War for all its warts and horrifying flaws, compare it with the half century that came before and compare it with what the, the makers of that order were hoping to achieve when they were forging it in the late 40s and early 50s. And by those metrics, uh, compared against what otherwise might have been, um, the, the American order, I think, was, was very successful. So I'm coming at your book kind of as a, a a leftist, but a leftist who's trained in obviously IR and specifically it's a long story, but I went through like a pretty conservative PhD program. One area though where the left and classical realists converge, I think, is like you say politics never ends, the clash of interests is endless. That is what leftists believe. Leftists believe that politics is foremost about power too just like classical mm -hmm. realists, right? There might be an area of divergence here and they don't share the pessimism um, assumption for sure. Right. But one thing where they may diverge, but I, it might just be a language thing and I'm not sure. So it's like a clarifying question, right? Um, it's about the inevitability of clashes. So like mm -hmm. for the left, there's a recognition that the valence of politics can change and it can be durable or brittle. Like you can create systems that build up distance from conflict, right? Um, but then you also you say for classical realists, by contrast, conflict between states is inevitable. So do you mean conflict as in war is inevitable or conflict as in conflicts of interest? Yeah, a conflicts of interest is the most important thing. But I mean, that's, you don't war comes from real, that. But yeah, right. You don't get the realism without the belief that however latent that these conflicts of interest may find expression in war. Mm. So it's not that war is inevitable. And it's, so it's the conflict of interests between states that is inevitable. That's, I think, maybe it's not necessarily a, a distinct to realism, but I think it's an essential part of realism. Mm. And I think what may be distinct to realism and essential to realism is the view that you cannot set aside the possibility that one side or both will resort to the use of force in order to advance their interests in the context of this clash of interests. I mean, I'm pretty confident in saying no prospect for war, no realism. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think you can have a realism if you have, if you take the possibility of war off the table. Mm -hmm. That's fair. Um, the, the, I don't know if you can do justice to this in a short sort of vignette way, but you had two case study chapters in the book that were very useful. They were kind of like plausibility probes in a sense for class classical realism. One was, of course, explaining British appeasement of Nazi Germany, why they did it. The other was, uh, you know, U.S. bombing and invasion of Vietnam, why they did it. I, you know, I guess the British appeasement first. Great case study. Uh, what are conventional explanations for British appeasement of the Nazis that fall short? How does classical realism help here? Well, what I was trying to do in the first exercise was distinguish between what I saw as the limitations of structural realist explanations with what I think really happened mm -hmm. that classical realism can tell us about. 
And I think that there's one really great structural realist explanation for British appeasement, which is the buck passing argument. Uh, and I think this is a deductively tight argument that Britain uh, wanted to save uh, cash and effort by trying to behave in a way that shifted as much of the burden of confronting Germ Germany onto France and others. I think that's a sound deductive argument, but I don't think if you look at the evidence carefully that that's actually what was going on. Mm -hmm. I don't think buck passing was an important motivator of British behavior, even though the theory is extremely well articulated. It's associated with Tom Christensen and Jack Snyder, yeah. two you know, first class IR scholars. And, and it's a paper that they wrote that I still assign because I think it's, you know, it's, it's really classic. good work. But I, I, I but I don't think that it actually captures what was going on. The second structural realist explanation i don't think has as much power but needed to be needs to be confronted by me because it is popular was that actually chamberlain was kind of a clever fellow that he was had dealt a really tough hand and he played it well that what he was really doing with appeasement was trying to buy time uh, and i think that that's just flat wrong I think that the evidence shows that he was not trying to buy time. He was trying to buy peace in our time uh, by appeasing Hitler. He was trying to avoid war, that if he really w thought war was a very likely alternative or, or prospect that he should have um, fought it before rather than after Munich, which really w shifted the balance of power against uh, the Allies and toward the Axis. So it was just a catastrophe from that regard. So what I, so what I do is I say, well, here are the two best or at least most popular structural realist explanations for British appeasement. And I think that, you know, one of them very sound deductively doesn't quite capture what was going on. Mm -hmm. And the other, I think, just doesn't fit the evidence and doesn't make much sense. But we can reach for classical realist variables, which are one, as I already mentioned, World War One, the trauma of the First World War. Britain just did not want to fight another war, desperately. I mean, because of World War II, I think regular folks in particular tend to overlook how horrifying and traumatizing the First World War was. It was the decimation of an entire generation, men from 20 to 40, just gone. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and for what? People really could not even tell on the other side of the story. So that desperate desire not to have another war, even people who had a very clear-eyed view of Hitler still were hoping against hope that somehow we could get through this thing without having to have another giant European war. Yeah. So there's that, history, the role of history. And then the other is ideology. And here's a simple test for you. Um, you know, Chamberlain, really? hated commies <laughs> and Chamberlain was actually and much of the British Conservative Party not uncomfortable with German fascism on the continent yeah and so here's the question if the fascists were in Russia and the communists were in Germany my argument is that Britain would have swiftly aligned with the Russian fascists against the German communists but because the communists were in Russia and the fascists were in Germany, Britain and Chamberlain in particular simply could not trust dealing with the Russians. And I'm not saying you should trust the Russians. I'm saying, but Hitler and Mussolini, these are the guys that Chamberlain thought he could deal with, thought he could trust. And that was rooted in an ideological blind spot. So if you want to understand British appeasement, what do you have to appeal to as a classical realist? And mm -hmm. I think it's history and ideology. 
and I'm sounding like a broken record or a scratched disc or a corrupted file, whatever the phrase is for kids today. But, you know, structural realism forbids appeals to history and ideology. They are irrelevant for structural realism in explaining the behavior of states. But I think they are essential in explaining gargantuanly important decisions like uh, British appeasement of Germany. I'll try and do Vietnam faster. All I was trying to do with Vietnam was to show that lots of great theories to explain US behavior over Vietnam uh, tend to fall under a cluster of theories called power cycle theories that have to do with imperial overstretch and imperial decline mm-hmm. and, and what have you. The best of those is Bob Gilpin's War and Change in World Politics, which I think is a brilliant book. Uh, I, I think it's a valuable book. I assign it routinely and, and one, one of the best books I think we have out there. But I don't think its underlying analytical model captures what was going on there. That, Viet, that, we're going, that we go back to Thucydides to try and understand the U.S. and Vietnam. That it wasn't about the limits of the U.S. power at its frontiers, but it was about the arrogance of power. It was about having a surplus of power too much power. The U.S. could do things like the Vietnam War or uh, the 2003 Gulf War simply because it had this extraordinary surplus of security. Any country that was worried about its physical security could not embark upon gigantic and misguided missions halfway around the globe. And so I was trying to distinguish a classical realist perspective, which emphasizes blunders made as a consequence of the hubris of great powers, And this, (laughs) I'm slapping my hands here, maybe you can hear it. This is the lesson of Thucydides in the Peloponnesian War. Not about the start of the first war, but rather about the misguided Sicilian adventure. That is what Thucydides most wanted to teach. The arrogance of hubris and the dangers of, in his phrase that he uses over and over in the book, that Athens consistently grasped for something more, mm-hmm. reaching too far. And so the Vietnam chapter was more to illustrate that a structural realist approach that tends to be folded into various forms of power cycle theory, even really great ones like Gilpin's War on Transgender World Politics, miss this crucial variable of the consequences of great powers having too much capability that leads them to be tempted to do foolish things. Yeah, that is probably the single most, uh, the, the the aspect of classical realism that I most appreciate, most to vibe with, and most needed today, I think. I, I suppose we should also acknowledge that like, you can explain the Vietnam War and British appeasement and even point to those same factors. You know, you can account for it the same way that a classical realist would without appealing to classical realism. Like a lot of people who do not identify as classical realists are are tuned in to the role of like American prestige and, you know, excessive, you know, power, what that does to us in Vietnam. On the question of hubris, you say, what, do you, what is the quote? You say that uh, efforts to describe, explain, understand and anticipate American behavior without reference to um, the global war on terror, losing two wars, the global financial crisis. Those efforts will come up empty. How do you how do you think U.S. foreign policy has been affected by the these overreaching type failures of Iraq war on terror? Financial crisis may be different, but the other two were basically milieu goals. Right. So I don't want I don't have a quick and simple answer for that, but I do want to I do want to underscore that sentence and what I was trying to do with it because I do think it is absolutely crucial. And again, it distinguishes between classical realism and structural realism. 
and it also goes back to World War One, right? When I said, well, if you want to understand how people are acting in the 1930s, you can't without understanding where they've been. Mm -hmm. And where they've been is World War One. <laughs> and similarly, if you look at the United States in 2016 or 2020, let's call it 2020, you're looking at a country that is characterized to me by having lost two long wars mm -hmm. and having a domestic economy characterized by the consequences of the aftermath of the global financial crisis. Not so much the global financial crisis, which I think uh, public policy around which in the heat of the moment was not so bad. Um, but in the aftermath of the crisis, what happened was the system was pretty much left largely in place. The people who caused the crisis were pretty much let off scot-free. Uh, and who suffers? Well, after financial crises, there are usually economic downturns. So we got the Great Recession. And that was really something that was experienced more by regular people, the so-called Main Street, Wall Street divide, right? Mm -hmm. In the post-global financial crisis environment, Wall Street did just fine. Main Street sort of got screwed. So if I want to explain American foreign policy in 2020 as a classical realist, my point of departure will be I can't understand what they're going to do without understanding that this is a policy that has experienced two long losing wars in recent memories and whose domestic social economy is scarred by the polarizing experience of both four decades of economic inequality, but these spectacularly polarizing consequences of the aftermath of the global financial crisis. Mm -hmm. A structural realist will say no. I'm going to count the tanks and planes in GDP, and that's exactly how powerful the U.S. is going to be. And if I want to explain its behavior, I'm going to look at those capabilities. And I, and again, classical realist says, no, you know, the U.S. in 2020, maybe it's not materially incredibly different than it was 20 years previously. But when confronted with exactly the same type of challenge in 2020, having experienced the last two decades that it experienced, it will behave differently than it did in, in the previous incarnation. And that is classical realism, right? History matters, politics matters, domestic politics matters. I mean, the critique of classical realism is, well, you're just saying everything matters. And I don't think I'm saying that. I'm, again, reaching back for my Kindlebergerian toolkit, saying, no, Lots of different things matter, and the craft of classical realism is to have the skills to know which tools to reach for to try and best understand the situation you're observing in any given moment. Yeah, that's fair. In the final sort of you know leg of this, I want to talk about China. So, and this gets to uh, Graham Allison and Mearsheimer, our favorite. <laughs> this show is very eclectic. I'm very eclectic, but a lot of people tune in because I have a point of view on China that like nobody in the beltway seems to grasp like the way that traditional ir makes sense of the world when it comes to china i'm kind of a skew of it in a way uh you have a whole chapter on how to make sense of china from the you know the classical realist perspective it didn't 100 percent map onto my view but it was actually pretty close shockingly close given how how that i'm not coming from this place right and you've to set this up you've got beef with two of the most common takes about China, which is Mearsheimer's offensive realism, Graham Allison's fucking Thucydides trap. Can you, mm. can you walk us through those two arguments and where they air? Yes, briefly. What I, again, the, the structure of that chapter in the book, chapter six, is similar to the structure of the 
chapter three chapter, which had the, the Germany case and the and the Vietnam case, mm-hmm. but just to say, well, we've got some structural realist theories out there, and here's why I think classical realism does a better job. And so with regard to Mearsheimer, what I do is walk through what I think is the incoherence of the deductive foundations of his theory. And essentially what it boils down to is that he pulls a fast one in saying, well, being a head, being a regional hegemon is the most secure place to be. And therefore anybody who could possibly try and be a regional hegemon will try and be a regional hegemon. Mm-hmm. But actually trying to be a regional hegemon can be the most dangerous thing that any state can try and do. Yeah. And a foundational assumption of Mearsheimer's argument is that states crave survival and security and autonomy among all, you know, above all other values. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, you know, for China, well, it's pretty secure. Uh, you know, it's a lot stronger than it was 20 years ago. It's orders of magnitude stronger than 40 years ago. It's much, much more secure than it ever was. What could possibly undermine that security? Not being overrun by some adversary, but rather a foolish bid for regional hegemony. I mean, most actors that have made foolish bids for regional hegemony have been utterly destroyed in the way Mearsheimer says states want to avoid. Now, I'm going to just encourage listeners to dive into the book there because the critique of Mearsheimer is much more elaborate. But I do think deductively, the theory doesn't make sense. And also, it is deterministic. Mm -hmm. And again, this gets back to our earlier discussion about the social and natural sciences. Uh, One red line distinction between the social and the natural sciences is that we may not have deterministic arguments in the social sciences. I go so far as to say the future is unwritten. (laughs) And so in that context, choices made by states matter. Politics matters. Diplomacy matters. And Mm -hmm. so, again, this gets back to your self-fulfilling prophecy argument. I mean, even if Mearsheimer's theory wasn't deductively incoherent, which, again, it is, nevertheless, his policy prescriptions would be that self-fulfilling prophecy. And so that that would be a mistake. So I think Mearsheimer really, or not Mearsheimer, I want to be very careful here, uh, because Mearsheimer has become something of a celebrity uh, more than a scholar. And I'm my critiques in the book are not of John Mearsheimer, the celebrity, but they're critiques of the theory of offensive realism as articulated by Mearsheimer in the tragedy of great power politics. It is an analytical disagreement with the argument and not about the person. And then, you know, Allison's Thucydides trap is just, you know, based on a shallow misreading of the Peloponnesian War. And basically, he reaches for a sleepwalker analogy uh, that the U.S. and China might stumble into war just like Athens and Sparta did. But actually, if you read, actually read uh, the Peloponnesian War, um, neither Athens nor Sparta sleptwalked or stumbled into the war. They both went into that war very much with eyes open. And Allison makes a series of gigantic blunders about the Peloponnesian War in the book. Uh, he says, for example, that um, Pericles reluctantly, you know, signed off on the war, goaded into it by, you know, a, a warmongering populace. 
Well, actually, that's um, the opposite of what Thucydides reports. Yeah. Thucydides reports that in the debates for war, the population was against the war, but they were swayed by Pericles' pro-war arguments. That is the tip of the Ehrenberg uh, in <laughs> Allison's book. And so I think we can just set that aside entirely. But then we get back to classical realism. And so we say, well, just because Allison's book should be set aside and that bumper stickers are a bad way to go about studying international politics. Um, and just because Mearsheimer's argument is deductively incoherent and makes policy prescriptions that are profoundly uh, misguided, that doesn't, that doesn't give us a get out of jail free card uh, because classical realism, let's go back to your earlier comment, is a little, a little bit of a pessimistic streak there, doesn't mm -hmm. it? And part of its pessimism derives from the fact that it thinks states are ambitious. And so that China, uh, which is, uh, there's a lot of controversy over whether we're allowed to call it an, emer you know, an emerging power or you know, whatever, whatever you want to describe it, it's a lot stronger than it used to be. Yeah. Um, states, great powers that are stronger than they used to be from a classical realist perspective, tend to want, like Johnny Rocco in Key Largo, uh, more. They, it is an assumption of classical realism, and we could be wrong about this. It's an assumption. We could be wrong about it. But part of the foundational assumption of classical realism is that states' ambitions will grow with their capabilities. So, so a more powerful China will want more. They will be difficult. They will also be arrogant. And they will also want deference and respect and all those other kind of squishy things. Whereas the U.S., as the status quo power, will be reluctant to recognize those aspirations on China's part um, because, you know, it's arranged an international order that seemed to fit its interests and it can wrap itself up in kind of the status quo saying, well, this is how things are. And so historically, it is common for rising states and the satisfied guardians of the status quo to come into conflict. So a classical realist perspective is not optimistic either about the likelihood that China will be a source of trouble in world politics down the road, uh, or that states like the US will do a really good job in reckoning with uh, those increased ambitions. Um, rather, I'm simply saying that that's not some tragedy of great power politics rooted in security seeking behavior. Rather, it's rooted in ambition and in fear, uh, which, is, which are two different things than you know, security seeking. Because the US and China are each pretty, pretty secure, if I can invoke Larry David. They don't get up in the morning and worry about whether they're going to survive, right? This is a clash of ambitions. Yes, which raises questions about why we would talk about it in terms of national interest. Um, so, you know, I, I guess as like a, a final question, but maybe a big one, you know, I find it very hard to distinguish what we call great power rivalry right now or great power competition from offensive realism, honestly, like at least from the U.S. side. What do you think? How do you size given what you, everything you just said? Like, what do you think about Washington's approach to China right now? Do you sense that we're on like a tragic trajectory without embracing, you know, Graham Allison or, or whatever? Or do you think we're responding to this prudently or what? I mean, like, how do you make sense of the current situation? Well, 
I would be reluctant to just say Washington, right? You have, you know, the executive branch, you have Congress, you have the various, you know, talking heads and all those things and their attitudes toward China. I think that the rhetoric that you hear coming out of the Biden administration is reaching for the idea that we should be aspiring to have a contained and contextualized great power rivalry. Um, And I think aspirationally, I think that's the best one can hope for, because I think some rivalry there, by a classical realist perspective, is is extremely likely. Um, But uh, what I think you're referring to is that it's very easy for politicians, and I think it's easier to situate these politicians in Congress rather than in the executive branch. And here is something where we have rare bipartisan consensus um, in, you know, taking a tough stand against foreigners. And the delightful thing about that is that foreigners tend not to vote uh, in our elections. So if you can blame problems on foreigners or posture as a tough guy by speaking in that way about them, mm-hmm. then that is something that can perhaps contribute to sub- the suboptimal practice of foreign policy. But I do think there are real dangers in the prospects for unintended escalation of conflicts so that political conflicts in Asia, South China Sea, perhaps Taiwan, wherever they may take place in that region, Mm -hmm. crises are to be expected. And the question is, will we find ourselves in a situation where those crises escalate unexpectedly or even against the best intentions of both sides because i don't personally think and i'm not an expert on chinese foreign policy that either the us or china is craving a shooting war with the other i think they are jockeying for political position and seeking to advance their clashing interests and goals but i think that they both well recognize that a shooting war between them would be rather catastrophic and ruinous for all sides. But sadly, that's no guarantee, right? I mean, a lot of people understood that World War I would be catastrophically ruinous for all sides. And that did not stop World War I from being catastrophically ruinous to all sides. And so that's the challenge of politics and diplomacy is to try and manage this clash of interests and this great power rivalry without without, again, having a crisis that spirals unexpectedly into a war. And, and the variables I reach for here are very Jervisian, right? Bob Jervis and back to the security dilemma and what might make the security dilemma more or less intense between the two in certain types of encounters that one side of the other will suddenly think, wow, war is very likely. And if it's going to happen, I better go first. And that's the path this seems most likely to me towards a tragic, not mere Charmerian tragic, uh, Jervisian tragic, uh, um, militarized conflict between the U.S. and China. Well said. All right, man. Jonathan Kirshner, the book is called An Unwritten Future, Realism, Uncertainty, and World Politics. This was a delicious conversation. Um, I, I I hope the listeners dig on it because this was so rich thanks for coming on thanks for the book thanks for having me it was a real pleasure to talk realism with you yeah (laughs) keeping it real all right (laughs) all right take care thanks a lot